Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the second installment of our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from inspecting the and views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. On January 1st, 1947, writer-turned-producer-and-executive Dory Sherry took over production at RKO Pictures. Within a few months, the studio released a trailer for one of their summer releases, Crossfire, a noirish drama about the post-war killing of a Jewish GI by an anti-Semite. In this trailer, Sherry himself appeared and spoke directly to potential ticket buyers about the film and its production. We're going to excerpt from this trailer at length because it's a pretty incredible artifact, particularly given what happened later. Ladies and gentlemen, of the motion picture going public. I want to tell you about a film we've just completed called Crossfire, which will be in this theater very soon. On February 13th, 1947, the final script of Crossfire was mimeographed and distributed to executives and department heads. At this time, a date for start of production is usually set up. But in the case of Crossfire, final decision was postponed. This script dealt with a subject that alarmed some people at the studio. And memos crossed my desk, which ran something like this. Are you sure the public will want to see this? It's a terrific story, but should we lead with our chins? 
Well, this is very outspoken, but have we got enough nerve to make it? Are you sure audiences will buy this kind of entertainment? But remembering the success of films like Grapes of Wrath and I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, I felt that audiences still want to see courageous motion pictures. So we decided to go ahead with Crossfire. Enthusiasm and excitement are the words which best describe the feeling of all who took part in the production of this film. Stars like Robert Young, Robert Mitchum, and Robert Ryan. And one of the best casts we have ever used in a film, including Gloria Graham, Paul Kelly, Sam Levine, Jacqueline White, and two new boys, George Cooper and William Phipps. The picture was rushed to completion, for its theme was both timely and important. And finally, we were ready for preview. We sneak previewed the film in New York City and Los Angeles. Ordinarily, we picture makers use words like sensational, terrific, and colossal to describe our product. But this time, you, the American picture audience, gave us our words. And here they are. Crossfire is one of the best pictures I've seen in years. At last, Hollywood comes of age. I and my whole family compliment you on your honesty and courage. Don't cut one frame or one word of Crossfire. I shall remember Crossfire as long as I live. Crossfire will be here very soon. I respectfully urge you to see it. This is a trailer. It's designed to sell the movie. Sherry and the people at Archeo thought, in the spring of 1947, that the best way to sell a film about murderous anti-Semitism would be to position it as part of the studio head's personal mission to push progressive films, courageous motion pictures whose themes were both timely and important. And the examples he gives, The Grapes of Wrath and I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, were both hits in a climate of New Deal liberalism, an indication that Sherry and RKO weren't aware how drastically times were changing. In the trailer, Sherry talks about the overwhelmingly positive reaction from early preview audiences. He doesn't mention, and maybe he did not yet know, that an FBI informant would attend a preview of Crossfire just before its release in July 1947, and file a report predicting that the army would resent the film, which the informant described as, quote, near treasonable in its implications and seeming effects to arouse race and religious hatred. Crossfire was rapturously received by the public. There were lines around the block in the cities throughout the late summer. Its $2.7 million box office gross was several multiples of its $700,000 budget, and it made more money than any other film for RKO that year, not featuring major stars Cary Grant and Loretta Young. It also competed at the 1947 Cannes Film Festival, where it won Best Social Film, one of only five prizes given that year. But by the time of Crossfire's release, the gears were already in motion to bring the film's director and producer before Congress to answer to charges that they were subversively injecting Hollywood films with communism. Crossfire director Edward Dimitrik and producer Adrian Scott were two members of the Hollywood Ten, the first ten men working in Hollywood to be called to testify about their ties to the Communist Party before the House Un-American Activities Committee. It was the congressional hearings of the Hollywood Ten 
that set in motion the blacklist. Today we're going to talk about the Hollywood 10 and the other nine men who made up what was called the unfriendly 19, all of whom were blacklisted except for the one who fled Hollywood before he could be. We'll talk about why the 1947 hearings, even though they ended amidst a flurry of negative press and were perceived as a flop by some, resulted in 10 men going to jail, and in every studio chief in Hollywood, including Dory Sherry, the self-styled champion of courageous cinema, agreeing to blacklist anyone suspected of subversive politics. But as we'll see, Sherry's was not the only ethical reversal. It was not even the only one made by a member of the key creative team of Crossfire. Join us, won't you, for the story of the Hollywood Ten. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Joseph McCarthy didn't invent what we would come to refer to as McCarthyism, the witch hunting of supposed subversives and outsiders that would come to dominate American politics in the 1950s. If anything, McCarthy may have gotten the idea to launch his own public red hunt from seeing how much publicity his predecessors got for attacking alleged communists in the film industry. As we learned in our last episode, Martin Dees established the HUAC committee way back in 1938, and by the time the committee was brought back to life in the late 1940s, President Harry Truman had already started investigating the quote-unquote loyalty of government employees. McCarthy didn't start making a name for himself as a red hunter until early 1950, when he declared that he had the names of over 200 communists working in the State Department. The events that we're going to talk about today began years before that. In July 1945, Mississippi Congressman John Rankin declared that Hollywood was playing host to what he called, quote, the greatest hotbed of subversive activities in the United States. Rankin had been a member of the Dees Committee and had hung on to become a high-ranking member of HUAC. He had an old-school Southerner's idea of what constituted Americanism. In 1946, when his fellow committee men considered investigating the Ku Klux Klan, Rankin opposed the idea, calling the Klan, quote, an old American institution. It was this sort of thing that compelled Orson Welles to change the name of his Nazi fugitive character in the film The Stranger to Charles Rankin. The real Rankin was concerned about how many foreigners held positions of power in the film industry. He was concerned that the most potentially influential media of the 20th century was controlled not by what he called God-fearing Christians, like himself, but by mostly immigrant Jews. In the rhetoric of men like Rankin, a pattern of binary code starts to emerge. On one side, the side of the political right, you have Americanism. Americanism set itself in opposition to anything other than Americanism. This included communism, of course, and also fascism, and strains of leftism that weren't communistic, 
the Americanists othered immigrants and Jews and black Americans and white Americans who fought for or supported civil rights for all. The Hollywood press started taking sides, with Daily Variety warning that the persecution of communists was starting to resemble a witch hunt. But when the right-leaning press, locally and in Washington, started taking up the issue, anything other than the oldest guard could be, and was, categorized as un-American. Rankin held closed-door hearings about communism in Hollywood and produced a 72-page report, which included the names of suspected communists. Some in Hollywood were concerned. Jack Warner, whose studio had been perceived as the most liberally-minded in the 1930s and most anti-fascist before the U.S. entered the war, declared that, quote, "...America needs awakening to the threat of communism." But others thought the threat was not exactly imminent. When his advisors told Columbia chief Harry Cohn that he should fire screenwriter John Howard Lawson, the founder of the Screenwriters Guild and a known communist, Cohn refused. But the national election in 1946 was a major turning point away from the leftism of the Roosevelt administration. As beloved as the late four-term president had been by many when he was alive, after a decade of war rationing, Americans were in the mood to consume— and the Democrats, thanks to Roosevelt, were inextricably linked to sacrifice. In a Republican groundswell that had the party taking control of Congress for the first time in 16 years, two of the new freshman congressmen were Richard Nixon and Joe McCarthy, while J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey became the new chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. J. Parnell Thomas took charge of the Hollywood investigations in May 1947, holding closed-door interviews in a suite at L.A.'s Biltmore Hotel. Most of the initial interviewees were members of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, including actor Robert Taylor and Leela Rogers, Ginger Rogers' mom. Eric Johnston, head of both the Motion Picture Association of America and the confusingly similarly named Association of Motion Picture Producers, scheduled an emergency meeting. Johnson recommended the studio heads agree to, quote, not employ proven communists in Hollywood jobs where they would be in a position to influence the screen. The studio executives refused to adopt this recommendation for two reasons. First of all, it seemed legally precarious for the studios to jointly agree to deny any person or person's employment. Even if a conspiracy couldn't be acted against in criminal court, the appearance of such would leave the executives and companies open to private lawsuits. But more importantly, the sticking point of Johnson's suggestion was the word proven. According to Johnston, the studios didn't know how to answer the following question. Who was going to prove whether a man was communist or not? As it would turn out, it was very difficult to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that anyone was a communist. The term card-carrying communist came to refer to members who were or had once been proud enough of their association with the party that they carried around their membership cards. But cards were easily destroyed. And what about people who had joined the party in the Depression but were no longer active members? What about people who had attended meetings just once or twice to see what they were like? What about people who had common names or whose names could be easily misspelled? How would you know absolutely that you were persecuting the correct person? 
Nobody felt comfortable denying employment to a man based on an assumption of what was going on in their head and their heart. But Huwak insisted that ultimately, the studios were responsible for ridding themselves of subversives. The Congressional Committee declared that they were giving Hollywood 60 days to root out and fire known communists. When the studios did nothing, 41 subpoenas were issued to members of the Hollywood community. Many blacklist memoirs indicate that nobody took Huwak seriously until a subpoena arrived at their door. Many still, with subpoenas in hand, figured that what the committee was doing was obviously illegal and unconstitutional and would never be allowed to stand. 19 of the 41 declared that they would not cooperate with the committee. Those 19 included Lester Cole, John Howard Lawson, and Samuel Ornitz, all founders of the Screenwriters Guild, which was presumed to be the center of communist power in Hollywood, and Gordon Kahn, who edited the Guild's newsletter. Union activism aside, this group was not amongst the Guild's most famous members, but like most of the other people subpoenaed, they had credits on notable films which could be identified as either leftist, communist-sympathetic, pro-Semitic, or, most complicatedly, prematurely anti-fascist in nature. Gordon Kahn had written a John Barrymore movie called World Premiere about an anti-Nazi film before the U.S. entered the war. Amongst the over two dozen films to which he had contributed since breaking into Hollywood in 1932, Lester Cole had worked on None Shall Escape, one of the first Hollywood films to openly damn the Germans for war crimes against Jews. Howard's most impressive credits included the Hedy Lamarr vehicle Algiers, the Spanish Civil War film Blockade, for which he was nominated for an Oscar, and Counterattack, a pro-Soviet film from 1945, starring Paul Muni and Larry Parks, who was also one of the 19. Amongst other things, Samuel Ornitz had contributed to the script for the original Imitation of Life, which was extremely progressive in its depiction of race for 1934. A commonality between the rest of the 19 was that they had all worked on films in the 1930s or early 1940s, which fit the spirit of that time, but no longer fit the concept of Americanism in 1947. Richard Collins had been one of five writers credited on Song of Russia, MGM's 1944 effort to humanize our then-allies. I can ride, I can shoot, and with the men going up, women will have to do more. Howard E. Koch co-wrote Casablanca, as well as the Warner Brothers pro-Russian wartime film Mission to Moscow. Ring Lardner Jr. had won an Oscar for writing the Hepburn Tracy vehicle Woman of the Year, but probably of more interest to the committee was his work on the short film Brotherhood of Man, which advocated for equal treatment for all races, and the wartime anti-Nazi film Tomorrow the World. There's only one thing to do, tear that uniform off. What are we waiting for? To hear from Amo. We're at war, aren't we? He's the enemy, he's a Nazi, just as I knew he would be. Albert Maltz had worked with Lardner on Cloak and Dagger, in which Gary Cooper played a war skeptic scientist turned spy character, vaguely inspired by Robert Oppenheimer. For the first time, thousands of allied scientists are working together to make what? A bomb! But who was willing to finance science before the war to wipe out tuberculosis? And when are we going to be given a billion dollars to wipe out cancer? As well as The House I Live In, 
a short film starring Frank Sinatra about racial tolerance. We don't want him in our neighborhood or going to our school. I've been living here as long as you. What's he got, smallpox or something? We don't like his religion. His religion? Look, mister, he's a dirt... Adrian Scott and Edward Dimitrik, the writer and director of Crossfire, were on the list, as was Dalton Trumbo, who with Dimitrik comprised the key creative team behind the film we discussed last week, Tender Comrade. Lewis Milestone, who won an Oscar for directing early Hollywood's definitive anti-war film All Quiet on the Western Front, was an old-school lefty who had helmed the pro-Soviet drama Armored Attack, also known as the North Star. To me, you are the real villain. Men who do the work of fascists while they pretend to themselves that they are better than the beasts for whom they work. Men who do murder Irving Pichel was guilty of directing The Man I Married, a 1940 film which offers a startlingly frank depiction of Nazi crimes for its time and was thus accused of premature anti-fascism. Few writers in Hollywood in the late 1940s had created as much anti-fascist work as early as Bertolt Brecht, who was called to answer for not only his large body of plays, but also Hangman Must Die, a loosely based on a true story Fritz Lang film about the assassination of one of Hitler's executioners by a Czech communist. A few of the 19 had made wartime films that were perhaps too imaginative. Alva Bessie, a former left-wing film critic, had been nominated for an Oscar for conceiving of the Errol Flynn war film Objective Burma, which was considered so pro-American that Winston Churchill had banned it in Britain due to its substituting of fictional American heroes for the British soldiers who fought and triumphed in Burma in real life. Waldo Salt was author of Tonight We Raid Calais, a clear influence on Inglorious Bastards, and Herbert Bieberman had directed Soviet plays as part of the Theater Guild before writing and directing the film The Master Race, a 1944 picture which imagined an injured German general hiding out in a Belgian village at the end of the war, manipulating the town into realizing the dream of true European supremacy. Robert Rawson had worked on a number of films implicitly critiquing capitalism, including The Roaring Twenties and The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, as well as They Won't Forget, the 1937 drama about the lynching of a Jewish man in which Lana Turner got her big break. But Rawson was more likely under suspicion thanks to his leadership of the Hollywood Writers' Mobilization, a wartime splinter of the Screenwriters Guild, through which Rawson advocated for the opening of a second front to aid the Soviets in the fight against the Germans. Many of the 19 had, at one point, been members of the Communist Party. According to Lester Cole, all of the Hollywood 10 were or had been communists. But that wasn't illegal. And none of these men were imminent dangers to American national security. None of them were making films openly advocating subversion or revolution that would not have been possible within the Hollywood system. Those who were able to insert their politics into films were mostly modeling values like anti-anti-Semitism, as in Crossfire, or they were making smaller gestures, like taking seriously the lives of women, as in Tender Comrade. Or they had demonized Nazis or celebrated Russians in films made during the war and with the encouragement of the U.S. government. Not everyone who was subpoenaed was in trouble. 
Many Hollywood conservatives, including Walt Disney, Louis B. Mayer, Gary Cooper, Sam Wood, and Leela Rogers, were subpoenaed for the purpose of serving as quote-unquote friendly witnesses. Even those who announced that they planned to not cooperate with the committee were, at first, supported by their studios. Lester Cole, for instance, had just been offered a substantial contract at MGM when his summons to testify arrived. Cole was worried MGM might rescind the offer for his contract, but Eddie Mannix insisted that the deal go through, telling Cole, no half-assed congressman's going to tell MGM how to run its business. The Association of Motion Picture Producers, which had recently rejected their leader's suggestion that they move forward with blacklisting known communists, took out ads in newspapers implying that the hearings to come were illegal. The ad read in part, quote, If we've committed a crime, we want to know it. If not, we should not be badgered by congressional committees. But this argument was besides the point. Congressional hearings can only resemble criminal trials or tribunals. Congress doesn't have the power to convict private citizens of any crime. It can only badger and accuse. And the citizens can only cooperate or else risk an indictment for contempt of Congress. In practice, the unfriendly witnesses brought before HUAC would have far fewer rights than a typical criminal brought to trial. They and their lawyers would be denied the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses against them or to question evidence, and their fate was not decided by a jury of their peers. If anything, they were at the mercy of the Congressional Tribunal, who were acting with the support of the media, who ensured that the Hollywood Ten were duly tried in the court of public opinion. The hearings on what the House Un-American Activities Committee called the communist infiltration of the motion picture industry went forward beginning on October 20th, 1947. At the insistence of lawyers representing the unfriendly 19, the proceedings, led by Congressmen Thomas and Nixon, took place in full view of the media. The friendly witnesses were called first. Jack Warner of Warner Brothers took the stand, and the head of the studio most identified with the New Deal announced his conversion. He noted the violent strikes at his studio the previous year and declared that he was done making movies about, quote, the little man. He read a prepared statement in which he offered to donate to what he called a pest removal fund to root out ideological termites burrowing into American soil and have them shipped to Russia. Warner demurred when it came to naming names of certain subversives, but he did list the name of several writers who he claimed had quote-unquote slanted the dialogue that they wrote to match their own politics, including Bessie, Kahn, Koch, Lardner, Trumbo, Lawson, Maltz, and Rawson. When asked why the producers hadn't banded together to share information about subversives so that they could be removed from Hollywood, Warner noted that such a thing would qualify as a conspiracy to, quote, deprive a man of a livelihood because of his political beliefs and would be illegal, quote, unless there are the proper laws created by you gentlemen in order to make a thing like that legal, possible, active, and effectual. Louis B. Mayer, when called to the stand, also asked Congress to pass a law justifying discrimination. Regulating employment of communists in private industry. It is my belief they should be denied 
sanctuary of the freedom they seek to destroy. Communism is based upon... Mayer went on to defend Song of Russia, MGM's entry into the wartime pro-Soviet movie sweepstakes. Ayn Rand then took the stand and excoriated the film. Screenwriter John Charles Moffat accused screenwriter John Howard Lawson of telling his Writers Guild fellows to try to sneak five minutes of party doctrine into every film. When asked to name names, Moffat repeated a list which had previously appeared in The Hollywood Reporter. Rupert Hughes, the uncle of Howard Hughes, took the stand and accused Lawson of transforming the Guild into a French organization for the Communist Party. Though he couldn't or wouldn't conclusively identify any single man as a communist, in a somewhat mangled aphorism, Hughes declared, If a wolf wears sheep's clothing, that man is a wolf. The parade of friendly witnesses continued, including Marx Brothers movie scribe James Kevin McGinnis and former Hearst film critic Howard Rushmore. Then came a series of stars. Screen Actors Guild President Ronald Reagan, then a Democrat, showed excellent political instincts by saying he could not identify any communist by name and insisting that the threat to the sanctity of the screen was insignificant. Only he and the FBI knew that Reagan had already supplied names of Screen Actors Guild members who he suspected of voting the party line. During the hearings, Eric Johnston of the MPAA made public a letter he had issued to some congressmen questioning the legitimacy of the proceedings, in which purported communists were, quote, slandered without a hearing or a chance to speak in self-defense, slandered and libeled by hostile witnesses not subject to cross-examination, and immune from subsequent suit or prosecution. The friendly witnesses would never be challenged, but the unfriendly were about to get a chance to speak. Sort of. Where the friendly witnesses were allowed to read prepared statements of any length to say pretty much anything they wanted to without fact-checking, rebuttal, arguments, or time constraints, Congressman Thomas made it very clear that the unfriendly witnesses were subject to him and his gavel. Eleven of the 19 unfriendlies subpoenaed were actually called to the stand. Ten of them had prepared written statements, but only a couple of those men were allowed to read them, although all of the statements were released to the media. John Howard Lawson, who testified first, was not allowed to read aloud a statement which accused the committee of wanting to, quote, cut living standards, introduce an economy of poverty, wipe out labor's rights, attack Negroes, Jews, and other minorities, drive us into a disastrous and unnecessary war. All Congressman Thomas cared about was Lawson's answer to what the congressman termed the $64 question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to question then you, which invades his, absolutely invades Then his you right. deny, to, you, you refuse to answer that question, is that correct? I have told you that I will All offer right. my beliefs, my affiliations, and excuse everything the else excuse the to the American public, and they will know where I stand, as they do from what I have written. Stand away I from the stand. From, for Americanism for many years, and I Stand away from the stand. Fight for the Bill of Rights, which I'll you are going to destroy. I'll stand away from the stand. You can watch this on YouTube and see several men moving to physically remove Lawson from the courtroom. When Dalton Trumbo was called to the stand, his response to the $64 question was to demand due process. Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? 
I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Well, you will pretty soon. Thomas was bluffing here. In the midst of the hearings, the MPAA demanded that the committee furnish the list that they had implied that they had of so-called subversive films that had been produced by Hollywood Studios. The committee would not name the names of the films, which ostensibly were the reason for the hearings. On the second day of testimony, Thomas declared he had a list of 79 people in Hollywood who were definitely communists. He never released that list, either. The committee, nothing if not inconsistent, allowed Alva Bessie to speak the first and last two paragraphs of his statement. Albert Maltz was allowed to read the entirety of his statement, in which he compared congressmen Thomas and Rankin to Goebbels and Himmler, suggested that the way things were going, the only institution that would be left without the taint of un-Americanism would be the Rankin-protected KKK, and categorized the hearings as a tool of backdoor censorship. This slightly hyperbolic argument points to the hypocrisy of the collaboration between the committee and the Hollywood Americanism crew. While claiming to be protecting America by ridding the screen of communist propaganda, weren't people like Sam Wood and Walt Disney really hoping to seize control of the industry so that cinema could be used for creating films that put forth their own political beliefs and visions of American life? Whether or not the aim of the hearings was censorship, the modus operandi of the hearings was censorship, in that, for the most part, the accused communists were only allowed to speak on their accusers' terms. Everything came down to the $64 question. The Hollywood 10 shared legal counsel, and they had agreed beforehand that they would simply not answer this question or any questions about their party membership or other affiliations because their whole defense was based on the idea that Congress had no right to pry into their lives, their beliefs, or their practice of assembly. Also, they knew that the committee could use their admitted allegiance to any social group or professional guild against them and against any fellow members of those groups. A pattern started to emerge. Thomas would refuse to let the unfriendly witnesses speak their minds. The witness would refuse to answer Thomas's questions directly. A dossier would be read exposing the supposedly damning evidence of the witness's communist ties, often including not much more than screen credits or the fact that they were members of the Writers Guild, which all screenwriters had to be. Then Thomas would wrap up by announcing that the witness would be indicted for contempt of court. The exception was Bertolt Brecht, the German poet and playwright who, through works like Mother Courage and Her Children, The Three Penny Opera, and Rise and Fall of the City of Mahogany, critiqued war and capitalism from a Marxist perspective. The German-born Brecht had fled Nazi Germany in 1933 and had been living in America for 10 years. The committee began reading excerpts from Brecht's pre-Hollywood works to prove he was a communist. Having not pledged with the others to avoid substantive dialogue with the committee, Brecht defended himself, insisting that his work had been misinterpreted due to mistranslation. And he didn't shy away from answering the $64 question. Uh, are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of any country? <coughs> Mr. Chairman, I have heard uh, my colleagues and uh, they uh, considered this question not as proper, but 
I am a guest in this country and do not want to enter in any legal arguments, so I will answer your question fully as well I can. I was not a member or am not a member of any communist party. At the end of his testimony, Brecht was thanked for being a good example and dismissed. He immediately hopped on a ship back to Germany, never to return. By Halloween, 11 of the 19 subpoenaed had been called to the stand. Larry Parks, Richard Collins, Gordon Kahn, Howard Koch, Louis Milestone, Irving Pichel, Robert Rawson, and Waldo Salt were all informed that their subpoenas didn't expire, and they could be called any time. But for the time being, the hearings were put on hold. The unfriendlies who had testified, minus Brecht, believed that it was all over, and that they had won. Samuel Goldwyn publicly called the hearings a flop. The MPAA, still waiting for Thomas to release his list of alleged propaganda films, declared that the sudden closing of the hearings vindicated the studio's position that there was no proof that Hollywood had allowed communists to control its products. Maybe that would have been that. But then William Randolph Hearst started using the front pages of his newspapers to publish editorials, declaring that, quote, the motion picture industry is now infested with communists. And since the studios had refused to clean house, the government ought to punish them by instituting official patriotic censorship to, quote, prevent further privileged indoctrination by the high-salaried camp followers of revolutionary Stalinism. Five days after the close of the hearings, the Screenwriters Guild held elections, which turned into a fierce battle between a group of candidates led by Lester Cole, all of them accused communists, and a group which ran on a pledge to sanitize the guild of communist influence. The anti-communist group won in a landslide, a sign that much had changed since the beginning of the hearings, and that Hollywood on the whole had been duly frightened. Another sign of the same came that very day, when the MPAA's Eric Johnston, who had just declared victory on behalf of the Hollywood Ten a few days earlier, told The Hollywood Reporter that the Ten had performed, quote, a tremendous disservice to their industry. It was time that the studios, Johnson said, take positive steps to meet this problem. Three weeks later, on the same day that Congress voted 347 to 17 to indict the Ten for contempt of court, Eric Johnston called a meeting of 50 film executives at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Johnston said they had two options, to continue to do nothing, which wasn't working out too well for anyone, as the newspapers seemed to be turning more virulently against the industry every day, or appease Hollywood's critics by instituting an industry-wide firing of known communists. This was by no means a slam-dunk proposal at first. He would ultimately back Johnston, but first... Louis B. Mayer reiterated his statement from his congressional testimony that Congress should pass a law against the hiring of its enemies and not task business owners with deciding who to discriminate against. I shouldn't be the one who tries to judge men, Mayer said. Dory Sherry, then head of RKO, 
and independent producer bigwigs Walter Wanger and Samuel Goldwyn all opposed the idea of a blacklist on legal and or moral grounds. And Sherry in particular, whose whole identity as a filmmaker was wrapped up in the idea of inspiring progressive social change, felt like he was railroaded that day at the Waldorf into accepting a program he didn't believe in. But he did accept it. Why did men like Mayer, who didn't care what people believed as long as they did good and profitable work, and Sherry, who had much in common ideologically with the employees whom he would have to blacklist, give in to pressure from Johnston and the rest of the group and allow the blacklist to happen? Blacklisted writer Bernard Gordon would later suggest that the Jewish studio heads had been, quote, shaken by the blatant anti-Semitism of Congressman John Rankin and by the clearly imputed Hollywood Jew communist thrust of the entire procedure. The implication is, there was no way of knowing to what extent the witch hunt would escalate and who would be the next target. And maybe the studio heads, afraid of losing the empires they had in many cases built from nothing, scapegoated expendable employees in order to save themselves. Whether or not this was the case, it does seem clear that after the initial 1947 hearings, it was expedient to make an example of the Hollywood Ten. There had still been no conclusive proof presented that any of the Hollywood Ten were a subversive threat. But they had not done themselves any favors by refusing to answer questions. There was a pervasive sense, in the media at least, that a man wouldn't invoke his right to silence unless he had something to hide. As Edward Dimitrik wrote later, quote, It was clear to those who listened that the unfriendly witnesses were behaving as communists could be expected to behave. The only thing we had accomplished was the one thing we had plotted so hard to avoid. Everyone was now convinced we were all communists. And this is what finally moved the studios to act. Not actual fear of communists. Not even the threat of government censorship, which was scary for sure, but would have taken more than a Hearst editorial before it actually happened. What the studios were afraid of in 1947 was the same thing they were afraid of 25 years earlier, when Will Hayes was brought to Hollywood to oversee self-censorship of film content in the wake of a number of scandals involving the perceived morality of movie stars, such as Fatty Arbuckle. They were worried about bad publicity. They thought that if regular people found reason to dislike the personal lives and habits of the people who made movies, then they would stop buying tickets to those movies. If millions of people made the decision to abstain from the picture houses on their own, that would be bad enough. But just as Catholic organizations were able to force the hand of the studios in the 1920s, now too there was a powerful lobbying group who could inspire a boycott. This time, it was the American Legion. The film industry could survive the firing of 10 men, most of them writers, always considered the most disposable and replaceable workers who had actual influence over the content of films. The film industry could not survive an organized boycott by every person in America who was afraid of communism. If avoiding that meant disposing of a few sacrificial lambs, that was what the studios were going to have to do. The only problem was, as MGM-designated hard-ass Eddie Mannix pointed out, that it would be illegal to fire the Hollywood Ten, even if you could prove they were communists, because California state law prohibited employment discrimination based on politics. 
here again. The model of what to do came from the scandals of the 1920s, when the studios began inserting morals clauses in the contracts of most Hollywood employees. Clauses which stated that the studio could void the contract if the employee were to behave in a way that could be defined as disreputable. If being a communist was the epitome of disrepute in 1947, refusing to say you weren't a communist was almost worse. The product of this afternoon at the Waldorf came to be called the Waldorf Declaration, an eight-paragraph statement which set the template for roughly 13 years of industry-wide blacklisting. It began by stating that the producers deplored the actions of the Hollywood Ten, who had, quote, impaired their usefulness to the industry by refusing to cooperate with the committee. It promised to fire and not hire any member of the Ten until he, quote, purged himself of contempt and declares under oath that he is not a communist. And that going forward, the studios would not, quote, knowingly employ a communist or any member of any party or group which advocates the overthrow of the government of the United States by force or by any illegal or unconstitutional methods. The talent guilds were urged to help the studios eliminate any subversives while also safeguarding free speech and a free screen. The statement closed in self-defense, insisting that, quote, nothing subversive or un-American has appeared on the screen, and offering the reminder that, quote, 30,000 loyal Americans employed in Hollywood had given our government invaluable aid in war and peace. The Waldorf Declaration also urged Congress to, quote, enact legislation to assist American industry to rid itself of subversive, disloyal elements. The Waldorf Declaration had immediate consequences. At RKO, Edward Dimitrik and Adrian Scott were straight up fired, although not by Sherry, who couldn't bear to do it himself, as was Ring Lardner Jr. by Fox, who had just extended his contract a few weeks before. MGM believed that its contracted Hollywood 10 writers, Lester Cole and Dalton Trumbo, had not been communists, and that they would prove their Americanism toot sweet. So the studio suspended them, rather than fired them. In essence, this was the same thing. In early 1948, Crossfire was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The Alliance began a phone call campaign to ensure that the nominees were shunned and the film completely shut out. Some of the remaining five of the Hollywood Ten drifted out of movie making and into writing plays or novels. But if you were a blacklisted screenwriter and you wanted to keep working in movies, there were options. Almost as quickly as the blacklist went into place, a black market formed. In the new film Trumbo, starring Brian Cranston, Dalton Trumbo is depicted as the king of the black market, operating as a writer under several different assumed names, and passing work off to other blacklisted screenwriters when there was too much coming in for him to handle himself. Trumbo and friends like Michael Wilson, Ring Lardner Jr., Paul Jericho, and Joseph Losey did share information about work opportunities, and Trumbo would farm some scripts out to other writers, and then occasionally rewrite the scripts himself when he decided they weren't up to snuff. But in reality, there wasn't that much work to get, and it didn't pay much. Though Trumbo and other blacklisted screenwriters took huge pay cuts, a script that would have once netted him $75,000 now brought in maybe $5,000, at least it was work. 
A lot of blacklisted screenwriters were not able to get enough steady work as writers on the black market, and they found odd jobs. Dalton Trumbo had used the name of his friend Ian McClellan Hunter to sell the script for Roman Holiday, a gambit that was risky for all parties, although all parties got a cut of the profits. But Hunter was himself blacklisted soon after, and he ended up making a living editing the in-house newsletter of the Diners Club. Meanwhile, the Ten and their lawyers were trying to prove that their contempt of court citations were unconstitutional. This didn't work, and only two men, Lawson and Trumbo, were given trials. Knowing that any guilty verdict would be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, the other eight had agreed to accept the highest court's ruling on Lawson and Trumbo's cases in lieu of having their own cases tried. They figured that no matter what happened in the lower courts, they had a pretty good chance with the Supreme Court because they assumed that five of the nine judges would take their side. But in mid-1949, two Supreme Court justices died. The Hollywood Ten's cases didn't even reach the court until April 1950, by which point the political balance of the court was not in their favor. The justices voted 6-2 to two not to hear the appeal. In June 1950, President Truman sent U.S. troops to South Korea to engage in war with the North Korean communists, who had the support of China and the Soviet Union. By the end of July 1950, each of the Hollywood Ten had been sentenced to time in federal prison. Eight of the Ten got a sentence of a full year, while Dimitrik and Bieberman got six months. Each of the Ten now had some time to contemplate what kind of world would be waiting for them when they got out. Several expected that their legal problems were just beginning. In 1950, Nevada Representative Pat McCarran introduced a bill that would allow for the detention of, quote, each person as to whom there is a reasonable ground to believe that such person probably will engage in or probably will conspire with others to engage in acts of espionage or sabotage. This bill was vetoed by President Truman, but both houses of Congress overrode his veto, and it became law in the fall of 1950. There were rumors among the Hollywood Ten that a concentration camp was being built in Montana to intern people like them. Bernard Gordon, a script reader who was subpoenaed by the committee but never called to the stand, reported seeing what looked like a prison camp being built in Griffith Park, about a mile northeast of the center of Hollywood. One of the most remarkable things about the blacklist, and particularly its proliferation after the Hollywood Ten served their prison sentences, is that one of its key instigators not only had a change of heart, but was also himself disgraced before the extremely damaging second round of HUAC hearings began in 1951. In 1949, HUAC ringleader J. Parnell Thomas published a kind of mea culpa in Liberty Magazine, in which he wrote that he had recently decided that, quote, motion picture criticism should be no function of Congress, and that in any case, as far as he could tell, quote, the communists haven't been very successful in introducing communist material into movies. This was, in essence, the architect of the witch hunt that led to the blacklist, publicly announcing that there was no reason for a witch hunt or a blacklist. A few months later, Thomas himself was brought before a grand jury to answer to charges of corruption. 
there were accusations that he had sold government jobs to relatives and that he had also put the names of non-existent people on federal payrolls so that he could embezzle their salaries. Thomas, who had ensured that the Hollywood Ten would be cited for contempt of Congress for invoking their Fifth Amendment right to avoid incriminating themselves, took the stand in his grand jury trial and pled the Fifth. He was convicted of misuse of government funds and sent to the same federal prison where Lester Cole and Ring Lardner Jr. were serving their sentences. In 1951, in consultation with the American Legion, the collected studios agreed to add a provision to the blacklist guidelines set forth in the Waldorf Declaration. Now they would deny employment to anyone who hid behind the Fifth Amendment. Sitting in jail serving his sentence for contempt of court, director Edward Dimitrik decided enough was enough. Having left the Communist Party before he was subpoenaed, he felt he had been railroaded by the party true believers amongst the ten, particularly John Howard Lawson, into standing as one. Dimitrik felt no loyalty to the other nine and their quote-unquote bankrupt idealism, and he wanted to destroy the public perception that he was connected to them. And this was merely a public perception. Most Hollywood communists did not consider Dimitrik to be one of them. In her memoir, Norma Barsman, whose husband Ben Barsman wrote two Dimitrik films, makes it seem like the cool kids tolerated Dimitrik because he was a decent director, though they were all, quote, put off by Eddie's steely eyes and the streak of cruelty we sensed in him. For his part, in his memoir, Dimitrik wrote off the communist he had met at meetings as, quote, all similar types, especially the women, stern-faced, dedicated, masculine in manner, dress, and appearance, and with a few exceptions, quite humorless. Dimitrik said that he had been thrown out of the party by John Howard Lawson in 1945 over a dispute regarding Dimitrik's direction of the film Cornered, written by party member John Wexley. Dimitrik didn't know why he should suffer in the name of a cause which he didn't support, and in fact had been excommunicated from. While still in prison, Dimitrik released a statement denying his affiliation with the Communist Party. When he found himself still blacklisted after prison, Dimitrik arranged to testify before HUAC. On April 25th, 1951, Dimitrik named to the committee six directors who he claimed were communists, as well as 17 writers, and thoroughly burned any remaining bridge between himself and the rest of the ten. As a result, Edward Dimitrik went back to work and lit up a path that others on the blacklist could follow to clear their own names by damning others. We will return to the stories of some members of the Hollywood Ten, and the stories of other friendly witnesses later in the season. But first, next week, the unlikely political conversion of Dorothy Parker. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, with production and research assistance from Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our audio editor is Henry Malofsky, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Subscribing to iTunes in particular really helps people find the show, so do that if you haven't already. 
You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And we have a couple new ways for you to follow the show. We now have a Facebook page, which you can like at Facebook.com slash You Must Remember This Podcast. And we have an Instagram. Follow You Must Remember This on Instagram for classic film images, previews of what we're working on, and much more. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University Maryland's forensic science programs today.